You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. The media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth, and the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning, well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at the type of psychological warfare and spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in, it's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media as a warfare against our people, and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. And now that heart is beating fast. And that's the rhythm I can dance to I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to That one big heart that's beating fast Tomorrow morning let it rain Tomorrow morning let it pour Tonight we're in the groove together Ain't gonna worry about Stormy weather Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble on drum. Beat out old trouble on drum. Beat out old trouble on drum. And kick all trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. And kick all trouble out the door. Kick him out the door. Kick him out the Welcome to Radical Australia and Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. The program will be podcast the next 48 hours. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Now, as always, we have special guests for Radical Australia. That's why we have Radical Australia, to talk to interesting people about their uh, lives. Hal, Hal, Mr Hal Linden, how art thou? Uh, my name is Hal Peck, P-E-C-K. Hal Peck. You, yes. You can, blame, you can blame Kelly for that. I said he must be Peck because I know his son Marcus. And she said, no, his name's Lyndon. <laughs> uh, that's right. Well, that's my second name from, uh, based on my grandmother's name. Yeah. Right. So, so it's Hal Lyndon Peck, but Peck yes. is the surname. Yes. yes. Now, look, it's a very simple format. We start at the beginning and we end at the end. And uh, the first question, just to orientate our listeners, uh, is what year were you born in? I was born in 1923. 1923. Yes. You would have been two years younger than my father if he was still alive because he was born in 1921. Yeah. So it's like talking to my dad, I think. <laughs> yeah, it makes me 97 years old now. Yeah, that's, that's excellent. Look, uh, your voice is uh, st- strong loud and clear. So obvi- That's very good. I'm glad to hear it. So obviously you've had an extraordinary life. Can you, can you tell us about the beginning? Where were you born and what, what was life like for a young kid? I was, I was born in, uh, and raised in the country, and my, uh, in Mirriborough, uh, and my father's family come from Bealaba, uh, and my mother's uh, family come from Denali. So I spent uh, all my youth in the country, mm. Mm. and um, 
during that time, my father, who was an architect, engineer, both mechanical and structural, and his father was a carriage builder, wheelwright and blacksmith. Uh, my mother was a pianist and music teacher and multi-skills in crafts, and, and she was a, an excellent cook. And her father was a gold assayist at Denali, and her mother did most of the tasks around the home, including milking the two cows. Uh, she was an intelligent and well-read lady. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father was born in Balaba, my mother in Denali. Right. So what was life like when, uh, I, I assume you went to the local primary school? Yes, I went to the local primary school, and then the uh, after that to a secondary institute of technology. Right. What was life like in the? In the what was the primary school like in the uh, late twenties and early thirties? It it was very it was very good. Uh, we of course wrote with pen and uh, with a slate initially, with slate and slate pencil, and then in grade two you gravitated to the use of a pen with a steel nib and dipping in the ink and the ink monitors and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But And most of my teachers were very good, but there was one in uh, second form that I remember distinctly. I, I won't mention her name. <laughs> but uh, uh, but she, she had a wooden handle with a long piece of leather on the end of it, and she would stand like an executioner with a strap over her head and hold out your hand and strap you hard as she could on the hand and then on the other hand and then on the first hand and the second hand. And she would administer the strap yes. uh, at least 10 times a day. Yeah, yeah. But she had good order in class. People <laughs> listened when she said anything. Yes. Look, I, I, I think I was about 10 when it was the first time I saw a growing man cry. I was called into the uh, vice principal's office because I had to get the cane. And he was an elderly gentleman at the end of his career, I think, and he was whack, whack, and third cane, the cane broke. And oh, he just yes. he just looked at me, he says, I've had that cane for 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> he was beside himself. But as you said, corporal punishment was part and parcel of going to school in those days. Yes. Yeah. But after going through uh, and having a very good experience at that primary school, the the teaching was excellent mm-hmm. uh, right through the school and uh, I had an enjoyable time. We had all of the, the usual problems as children in the classroom uh, and in the yard because there were the whole gambit of types of student, including school bullies and all the rest. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, after that, I went to the Institute of Technology, which is um, not like a technical school. It was a proper Institute of Technology with full working mach- uh, engineering workshops, foundry workshops, and pattern making workshops, wood workshops, and electrical uh, appar- apparatus workshops, and also chemistry with full chemistry equipment and every student when they're doing chemistry had to work through all of the experiments themselves and produce a result and write it up. Hmm. So it was uh, different to a technical school in the sense that it had extensive facilities, which was quite remarkable at that time in the country. And this was in Mirabara itself, was it? Uh, That was in Mirabara itself. Hmm. No, it wouldn't be like it was then. It's now become like a, an ordinary school, I think. Yes. Do you think it was like that because people needed a lot of practical skills in the country and this was uh, something that I, parents I demanded? I think it's symptomatic of the whole scene at the time. At the, we used to have our own bank manager who was a state bank manager and we had a Commonwealth bank manager and we had railway workshops and uh, we made trains in Australia. We owned the state electricity, and we owned the waterworks, we owned all of those institutions, and the revenue from them came back to the people. Mm. So that they not only gave service at the time, but provided funds for the government to carry out its policies. 
and all that changed, of course, was the, the, the inverted commas, new thinking, whatever you think of it, yes. where it's better to have people from overseas come in and run these things and cream the profits mm. off and take them out of the country. Yeah, not only that, it also provided stable employment uh, through an apprenticeship it was, scheme. It was, yeah. it was, an ability, an ability of people to fully develop their skills and become experts in a field which is useful to the state or the country, or the country overall. Mm. So, so did, did you complete uh, the, uh, the technical? Right. Did you complete uh, your time at the college? Yes, yes. I I, I became fully qualified in engineering, mm-hmm. and at that stage, uh, I got an urgent call uh, from. Uh, the government insisting that in, within two days' time I present myself to Fisherman's Bend to the Commonwealth Aircraft Factory, mm-hmm. where they had an urgent need of uh, design draftsmen to work on the development of a new fighter plane. And what At year, that stage... What, yeah, what year was that? Um... Uh, I, that was that was early in the war. When, early in when the war, so the war had the, had the war broken out by the time you uh, finished. Yes, that was yeah. that was uh, mm-hmm. a stage where we ad- urgently needed a fighter plane. We didn't have one, mm-hmm. and the only thing we had was a wacket uh, trainer and uh, a Wirraway, which was a training plane. Right. But uh, so we went to work in with those workshops, which were extensive workshops. Everything could be made in the workshops, the whole plane. And we worked on design for something like 75 hours, all of us working about 75 hours, 50 of us in the drawing design office. And uh, we uh, felt the desperate need, and so we kept on working hard. And uh, after a period of time, we produced a the plane, it was tested and flown, uh, and then I was sent within two days of that to work on the conversion of the Beaufort aircraft to make it a fighter bomber for use in the Pacific during night flights. Hmm. And where were you sent? I was, uh, well, at, a, at another drawing design office. Uh, same same where, area, right. Yes. So what was the feeling like among people at that stage of the war, that early stage of the war, what was the general feeling like? Did people understand how serious the situation was? No, a lot didn't. For example, whereas the shit had been, excuse the word, the shit had been bombed out of Darwin mm. and there had been a torpedo boat in the Sydney Harbour and that Sydney had been shelled, it wasn't a serious enough occurrence to... Uh, make people fully conscious of what was going on. What they feel about uh, men and women, being, especially men being drafted and sent overseas and dying, did, did, did that well, make any impact on people? Or? Well, I think, I think that you'd, if you put that in context, when I was a boy uh, and at school, and all school holidays I used to work on farms, uh, milking cows, driving a team of four Clydesdales, bringing in the hay or whatever, was going on and uh, in those days the uh, production of food in the country was was critical and I think that the people didn't understand that with the war uh, there was urgent need for manpower a train would come into a Mirabeau station. 30 to 40 young men would get off. The policeman would meet them at the station and say, Righto, boys, get around town, earn a bob or two, doing odd jobs, but I want you out of town by six. Mm. He knew that he'd have trouble if they stayed there and were drinking. Mm. So he did the right thing. Everyone around the town, if they could, got the people to do some simple task and gave them a handout and some money. And they'd move out of town, set up camps, and within uh, 15 minutes, the fire would be going, the billy would be boiling, and there's several rabbits roasting on a spit, because most of them had a, tw- a, sh- a short 22 rifle that fitted into their pack. Mm. 
So did you spend all the war at Fisherman's Bend or were you sent elsewhere? <coughs> I was first of all at Fisherman's Bend and then I was asked to go to Collins Street to a design office and four of us who were designing military equipment for the government, uh, which I don't, I can't mention. No, no I understand. Uh, but uh, they, we had three jobbing workshops, and in those jobbing workshops, we had tradesmen who you not never see the like of again in, now, because nowadays a person is brilliant at an NC machine, can produce 500 million parts of the same nature. Those jobbing workshop people could do any bloody thing and make it pronto. Mm. So when we were designing something, we'd send them instructions to make up test apparatus for us to see whether it was valid or not, and then subject to their results, we'd proceed with the working drawings which would lead it to production. Mm. So did you spend the rest of the war in Collins Street designing, did you? No, no. Uh, I worked on that, but then my brother had already joined up and became a pilot, and I realised the desperate nature of the situation. I uh, joined and went to New Guinea, Bougainville, served in Bougainville until mm. seven days after war was declared over. Fighting was still going on there, and I think if it had gone on for another few weeks, I wouldn't be here. Right. Why do you say that? Well, they had a third more troops Japanese skilled troops than we had, and they practically surrounded us. Mm. But I don't want to talk about anything relating to war again. No, I, under but, I understand right. that. That's fine. We'll, we'll move. Because there was, a, I don't think people realise how horrific uh, Bougainville, my father-in-law who's died in the mid-80s, he was a, a veteran of Bougainville and he never spoke yeah. about it. And whenever he saw a gun, he would just break it in two because... Uh, his experience was so horrific, so I can, I can uh, sympathise with your situation. So you got back to Australia, and what was it like coming back? Well, it was great. <laughs> but, of course, unfortunately, my brother had crashed his, in his plane and mm. uh, died. So um, when I came back, I had the facility to go on doing studies sponsored by the government, and so I went to RMIT and did a full four-year course in design there. That's uh, industrial design, and it was, uh, I was in classes with people like Clement Meadmore, who designed the, the chair, and uh, Grant Featherston, and other people like that. Mm -hmm. uh, Cliff Last was there. But uh, it was a sculptor. But uh, after that, I was asked to go and lecture at uh, Melbourne in the Faculty of Education. And I went to the Faculty of Education, uh, which was a building on the corner of Swanson and uh, Grattan Street. And it was fully set up to... Uh, with all the facilities, it had uh, metal workshops, wood workshops, but of the highest order, very, very complicated with all the machines that are necessary. And uh, lecture rooms, and uh, I was asked to be working in the design department where our job was to produce a course which was suitable for training people in uh, design, that is, uh, a new subject in in the schools, and at that stage there was uh, no such subject existing. So we had to create a course which was suitable that would uh, would trade teachers to be able to go out into schools and teach uh, technical design to students. Mm. It's interesting. I've spoken to a. I mean, I'm, I'm nearly seventy these days, so spoken to a lot of, when I was younger, returned service uh, men and women, and they were very grateful when they came back from the war because they could, if they wanted to, they could pursue a lot of uh, government-funded uh, education 
you know, and it would set them up for well, life. That, that was good for me. And then I also also did a Master of Arts uh, in Fine Art with a lecture on the scientific influences on Rena- Renaissance art mm. uh, with... Uh, uh, that's at Melbourne University, mm-hmm. and Ursula Hoff was one of my uh, people supervising my course, and also uh, some other people who subsequently have been well known for their uh, work on art. So what made you do a Masters of Arts? You must, do you have an interest in that area or do you have some skills? I have had an interest in parallel with art all the time that I've been working in uh, mechanical engineering. But also I have an interest in architecture and have worked in practising architecture. Right. So did you... Follow your artistic uh, bent after your masters, or is that something you've just kept in reserve? Uh, I've I worked in design mm. uh, again uh, after the masters, but in but but that is in uh, industrial design, and I worked on the design of a prototype large drum machine for McPherson's drum sanding machine mm. for McPherson's. And then subsequently, because there was a need for a, a one which would fold up into a tighter vertical position to get underneath staircases and the like, uh, designed a second machine for them. And uh, I also designed uh, the jigs, tools and products for a plastics firm, Carlin Distributors, for a, for a period of time. Right. Getting back to the... Late forties and early fifties. Uh, it yes. was a time of political upheaval. Have you got any recollections of that period? Yes, I, I have. I have quite a few rec- recollections of that because uh, I uh, I thought I knew what was going on, and I was much more to the left of perhaps a larger body of the community. And I can remember on one occasion when. Uh, uh, I was chased after putting out posters in Sydney Road. Uh, I was chased for about three quarters of a mile by a young energetic policeman because I was sticking up uh, posters against the Vietnam War. Mm. But uh, I outran him. I had, <laughs> been, uh, I had I had been a cross country runner, and I used to do uh, used to be an equal Victorian record in four forty when Ooh. I was sixteen. Right. What, 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 what? I was a bit of an athlete, not as good as you. So, what, what did? You, yeah, he's run in fif- uh, fifty-three seconds. Fifty-three. That, that's that's not to be scoffed at. You know? And I used to run a, a mile in four fifty. Four fifty. Yeah, that's good. Uh, at sixteen. At sixteen. Yeah. All right. That's how you spent your misspent youth. You actually <laughs> didn't. And I used to go for long bike rides with with my mates and yeah, uh, yeah. I have ridden as much as 200 kilometres or more in a day. Right. 200 in a day? Yeah. Oh, you're making me feel tired. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, you're making me feel tired talking to you. That's with a fixed fixed gear, 48 on, 48 on front, 16 on the back. Back. Oh. <laughs> so getting back to you the... Have to, you get out, have to get off and walk on some hills. Yeah. <laughs> So let's go back a little bit period. Like I said, the late 40s, early 50s when Menzies came yes. in. What did you yep. think of during that period? You know, there was the big strike and the army came out, the ALP called out the army. Were, were you involved in that or were you a spectator? Uh, I I was uh, in, involved in quite a lot of left-wing protest mm. movements and... Um, Similarly, as with the Vietnam situation, one of my sons had set up a, a large-scale printing press of the old type, one on rails with a format of something like uh, 23 inches by 14 or something like that, plate, big plate camera type thing with arc lamps and all the rest. Mm-hmm. And he was in, set up in a, a, over a cafe in Brunswick Street printing 
uh, anti-Vietnam War posters. So from that you get an indication that I'm pretty much against any of the wars which are unjust wars. Mm. Mm. And most of them are, of course. Yeah, most of them are. So how involved were you in the uh, moratorium movement, apart from outrunning young police? <laughs> uh, well, it's, it's not, uh, not an area I want to go into greatly. Right, OK. But uh, I... Well, you're t- trying to tell knew, us... There are... I, knew, I knew most of the main protagonists right, and right. associated with them. You're not trying to tell us there are outstanding warrants for you, <laughs> You're not trying to tell us there are outstanding warrants for your arrest. No, no, <laughs> no, no, okay. no, no. All right. <laughs> but, but one of my sons, I had to go to court and speak for him because he'd been putting up posters too, which, you know. It's yeah. <laughs> well, because nobody uh, listens to this program. I've actually got an outstanding warrant from 1971, but... Uh, I'm still waiting for the knock on the door. Yes. <laughs> so, are you willing to talk about any of the other left-wing activities you're involved in? Um, I, I think one of them infringes on that because all my life, when I've been involved in the uh, understanding of the Aboriginal culture, mm-hmm. when I was sixteen, my brother, my father gave me. Uh, a first edition book by Brow Smith of the Aboriginals of Victoria, which I read at the time. And I still have the book. It was very tattered. It was an old book being thrown out of the School of Mines, and my father kept it. And I've, I've ta- taken the trouble of spending $300 getting it completely rebound as it was, because I, it, I treasured that and I read it as a boy. But since then, I've been reading all my life on the Aboriginal uh, problems and Aboriginal culture and have at times had as much as five or six hundred books in my library on Aboriginal culture. But apart from that, my wife and I have visited uh, Aboriginal territories in the north and I'm fairly much aware of most of the uh, problems that they face. Mm. So, so we, you're, you're invited to some of the uh, more remote communities, or? Uh, well, I was. Um, I went just because I was interested. Mm-hmm. I wasn't invited, no. but when I was there, of yes. course, I was welcomed. Yeah. But the uh, the uh, thing about the Aboriginal culture that is not understood is that they had a full working understanding of everything in their culture, everything that they associated with, they had a a full personal relationship to. Uh, Bruce Pascoe in his book, Dark Emu, recently brought out information, which was well documented, of uh, buildings that have been built in the southwest of Victoria, which were big enough to hold 20 people and which were weatherproof, and there wasn't one, but there were enough of them to be a village. This this was never taught in schools. Mm. What was taught in schools that the Aborigines were just a primitive people who just threw a few sticks and some bark up against a couple of props, and that's how they lived. But um, I feel that the denial of the cultural factors of the Aboriginal life uh, being taught in schools is a, is a, a travesty hmm. did you uh, you said your wife's still alive did you uh, I my first wife was Joy uh, Peck mm-hmm. she'd been a girlfriend of Cliff Pugh and uh, I, he'd separated from her and I met her at a later stage married and had three children built a mud brick house up at Eltham and lived at Eltham. Let's go. Uh, one, let's go back one step. Now, you yep. would have been part of that pioneering tradition in the sixties. Yes, had. yes, could, yes. Could, I was. I was one ex- of the first people to build a mudbrick house up there. Oh. Alistair Knox had been 
uh, doing it uh, with paid employment. And uh, there was also a rammed earth being done up there too by another person with with steel forms on uh, gantries which could be raised in a 20-foot a, a wall, 18 inches thick of rammed earth could be put up in a day. But I built a, I built a complete mud brick house. First of all, I had to move into a tent on the site. I was working full time. And uh, me and the possum used to associate at the tent. <laughs> and then after a while, a neighbour had decided to take his wife round Victoria and he bought a gypsy-type caravan. That's the type of the stove in it, the do- uh, curved roof. Yeah. And she said, get that bloody thing out of here. And so he left the caravan on my property mm-hmm. and got rid of the horse. And so I moved into a caravan, which was luxury, a right. empty caravan with, a, but the, but with the, a reflector and a candle and a book over, over my shoulder and a book, yeah. and I was happy. But did you, did you invite the possum in or did it just get... It didn't, uh, it didn't follow you. <laughs> but you know, magpies and cockroaches yeah, used yeah. to come and sit on my arm and wait for food. Right, right. So where was this in Warrandyte or at Eltham? Eltham, and on uh, the north side of Eltham, over towards Bolton Street. Yes. So what did you? This was in the sixties, was it? Yes. Well, so what did your neighbours think of you? Right. I, I was next to a large dam, which later on recalled, became called Pex Dam. Right. And then my first neighbour was actually built in mud brick as well, was Tim and Betty Burstall. Mm. Betty was uh, a person who had studied plays overseas and had uh, then become the person who developed La Mama mm. in the city in Carlton. And Tim was a the son of a lecturer at Melbourne University, and uh, he was uh, also involved in making a films. Uh, I worked with him, actually. On a, we all worked voluntarily, of course, in our spare time, on a, producing the, a film which won a Venice Film Prize Festival that was the, the prize. And that was shot by Gerard Vandenberg, who was, a, a, I, I thought, a a very sensitive and very, very good photographer. And unfortunately, because Tim had had to mortgage his house to pay for film stock, when Gerard had his finger on the trigger, I said, oh, this is wonderful. This is, I love this shot. I love this shot. He kept his finger on the trigger. So Tim would have to yell, get your bloody hand off that trigger, Gerard. I can't afford it. But Tim was working, in those days, was film stock. So you're working with a negative and then to a positive. Yes. And Tim was trying to work at a ratio of five to one, which was all he could afford after mortgaging his house. Whereas uh, On the Beach was being produced, when that was down, produced in Australia with Gregory Peck and Ava Gardner. Uh, they had six cameras going when Gregory Peck and Ava Gardner were, were doing something and they shot at something like 70 to 1 mm. because they couldn't afford to get to miss out on something and have to ask Gregory Peck at a high value, high <laughs> price and, and Ava Gardner back. So it was better to have more cameras. Yes, yeah. The difference is immense. <laughs> yeah, but but why, how, why, why did you go to Eltham? I mean, it's... It wasn't uh, easy living. What made you go there? I'd been living... I I, I was, along with others, I used to go around the back streets uh, uh, and if I saw a loft, I'd go around and ask the people in front, could I rent your loft? Uh, I'd be prepared to clean it up because they weren't being used. Mm. And so I moved into a loft in Parkville at the same time that... uh, Cliff Pugh had a loft in Parkville, mm. and also Stephen Murray Smith had one on the corner of uh, Elizabeth Street and um, Grattan Street. Mm. And um, all my friends, when they wanted accommodation, would go for a loft because you've got a bigger space and half the price of a room, renting right. a room. Yeah. And so I had... A, then I, I found a loft up in the old Victorian, uh, the 
fire brigade station, an old Victorian building which had a central arch with a carriageway through to a big loft and carriage house at the back. And I rented that out and did it up and pirated a bit of electricity from uh, the fire brigade station. And I was quite happy there and I lived there for a while. But I needed somewhere to live, so you couldn't afford anywhere else but at Eltham, the land was dirt cheap. By dirt cheap, I'm talking in those days about 90 pounds a block. Right. So I bought a couple of blocks, half an acre or so, and then started build, started set up a tent and then started making mud bricks. Um, how much did you know about mud brick building before you started? Uh, actually, my father was an architect and he had a client come to him up at Mirraborough who, with his wife, wanted a mud brick house. And my father, uh, he asked him, you know, what finances he had. He couldn't afford the finances for an architect even. Mm. And so my father, at, when I was 16, my father gave me that job. You're, you're their architect. You follow it through and do everything that they need to produce a house. Right. So I worked with them uh, of finding out what they wanted, did sketches, then did full architectural drawings and submitted them to council and got approval and then supervised the building, which they did. And because it's such a, a suitable material for a person who wants to work, they make the mud bricks, they lay the mud bricks using mud as a water, and they do all the work themselves. This ideally suited this couple, mm -hmm. and so I followed it through to the end. And subsequently to that, actually in the same year, I got another job of designing a, a, a country toilet near a church. The church was going to be moved, and they wanted a toilet there now, which could be taken apart and reassembled at the new site. So I designed and made one myself, making the moulds and pouring the concrete of reinforced concrete, corner posts with slots and slotted concrete. The whole thing could be put together in two hours, and that was used and made uh, in the new site as well. Mm -hmm. And after that, I um, had other things like that that I worked with um, my father on. Mm. So, so could you be described, I know this is a word that's been overused, as a, you had a kind of bohemian, uh, as a young man, you were a bohemian in terms of the... You could, you could say <laughs> that, yes. Because I noticed yeah. all the names, you you, were, you, all you, the names you, you mentioned and uh, you, thought... could, you, could quite, you could quite easily say that. Yes, and people... And, and, and I've been to some butte parties in my time. Have you? <laughs> you don't want to share any, do you? Uh, one, one, of, one of the things that in those days that when, when I was living at Eltham, we used to be able to go to a vintner and buy from him 10-gallon lots of his wine, all his best wine. In those days, they didn't keep their best stuff for bottles. You could buy it. I used to go to John Brown. I knew John Brown because I used to drink with him over in Carlton. Uh, but uh, I went to his vineyard and he gave me a 10-gallon container, uh, which he sent to the nearest railway station at Eltham, which uh, was of uh, a straight, his best Cabernet Sauvignon. Oh. And uh, likewise, all a number of my friends would uh, wash their old wine bottles and put them aside and buy corks and soak them. And we'd have a bottling. Sometimes we'd bottle huge amounts of wine. And the aim the aim was to get enough bottles down that you can leave some aside and just use the ones you've had for four or five years. Mm. And I knew one person who had, I think, 1,800 <laughs> bottles in his, in his cellar, another person about 1,200. But you needed about that number to be able to always drinking mature wine. And you bought them at something like a quarter of the price of a bottled wine in the shop. Uh, uh. So, so how did you get into work? Did you use the train every day to get into work from uh, Eltham? Yeah, 
trained, mm-hmm. and then so that led me eventually, eventually to sell my house to uh, a person, Felicity uh, Sinjin Moore, who was a writer on art and wrote a uh, major treatise on the life of Vasiliev, Danilia Vasiliev, who was a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I, she interviewed me uh, about some aspects of his life. Mm. Mm. And that was in the book. But, uh, so I, I had association with uh, a fairly wide variety of people. Mm. But after selling the house there, I bought a house in Gore Street, uh, 34 Gore Street, which was a National Trust place built in 18... So that it was one of the first houses in the whole of Fitzroy. Mm. The only, the only, only perhaps only two others in Fitzroy that were anything like it at the time. But it was beautifully built by top quality British craftsmen, and the materials were superb. I, I, you know, I I don't think you'd get a house like that now. But it was run down. And it was cheap at the auction, very cheap, very cheap because it was run down and practically boarded up and it had been uh, used. It was low class, low class rent in that in that area. Fitzroy, you wouldn't go to bloody Fitzroy, would you? No. That's where all the crims live. Yeah. Well, I, there were crims in my street, yes. uh, three of them that I knew. Yes. And in fact, I left something on my car one day, and he bought it at the door. Say, hey, look, mate, you left this. They didn't shit in their own nest. They go rob us from other suburbs. Oh, exactly. That's the first thing you learn. I had to teach my son that. He was stealing from the local shop. He was stealing, he was stealing um, Coke bottles at night. You know, he'd go there. And I f- found out one day and I said, look, I said, look, I don't care if you steal, but you don't steal. You don't shit in your own street. <laughs> yeah. You don't shit in your own nest, yeah. yeah exactly. Look, I'm going to, when I finish this interview, I'm going to walk down to 34 Gall Street, which is about 300 metres from here, and have a, have a look yeah. at that place. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, it was uh, a grand building, but inside it was the materials and everything about it were quite the old thing, the way an old craftsman would make things and the materials were top quality timbers. I'm pretty, I'm pretty familiar with uh, timbers mm-hmm. and their, their qualities and uh, this was absolutely uh, out of the drawer, out of the top drawer. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you what you bought it for? Yes, I think I, I think about, it might have been £20,000. 20000 right. Uh, well, it'll be worth about two million now, if maybe two oh, and a half. Over two million now, uh, yes. Yeah, uh, Kelly, uh, the producer, has just brought it up on her computer and she's looking at it <laughs> on her phone. <laughs> oh, yes, good. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to I'm going to walk around. I, mean, I, I prefer to see the real thing. She's... But anyhow, I, I lived there and uh, had with my uh, first wife uh-huh. uh, and. I had a family uh, there and eventually uh, sold it and because we split up mm-hmm. over a, a number of things which I won't go into. No, but uh, uh, I then bought very cheaply a place in Gore Street, Fitzroy. Mm. Uh, sorry, in uh, Ray Street, Fitzroy. Ray Street, yeah. North Fitzroy. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that was also run down. In fact, it was absolutely uh, run down because there's been a group of people in it who hadn't looked after it. They'd just been renting it. And I noticed when I ripped up the old carpet under the stairs, there was a silver rectangular packet of about uh, uh, the length of your hand extended mm-hmm. and something like... Uh, twice the thickness of your thumb in diameter mm-hmm. rolled up in silver foil and it was just a pure concentrated weed. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They'd, they'd forgotten where it was there. They'd forgotten they'd had it hidden it there. Yeah, yeah I'm sure they had, yeah. 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 So but I, had, I did that place up and I made some alterations in it and 
went to second-hand places and bought all the heavy timbers to build bookshelves. Got, I've got a couple of thousand books in my house. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've got the books all around me while I look now. Right. You're talking about timbers. Um, is there any particular timbers, local timbers, you're uh, particularly interested in? Well, it's a matter of knowing the timber and finding one which is appropriate for the job. With, mm-hmm. For example, from Western Australia, we used to get a the red cedar. It's no longer possible to get it. It's, it's, even if you went to a timber yard, you wouldn't find it in the list. I fortunately went to a, a skip near a church near where I live and found a full-length pew made of the old red cedar. Mm. It was broken in them getting it out of the church. If they'd taken it to an antique dealer at the time, they would have a thousand dollars for it. But I was fortunate because I made a number of items of furniture, some quite big items of furniture, uh, out of it, like Mm. a a cupboard uh, with paneled doors and things like that. Mm. And I make a lot of things for around the house. But I don't use any new timber. I only only use uh, mm. timber that I find in the skip store from yeah. old sites. Mm. So that if you want a strong timber to lo- have a be- load bearing, you get the Douglas fir, which is the uh, one which people call cor- uh, Oregon. Yeah. It's an Oregon beam will uh, support more load than any other timber in the world mm. because it's a, a, a soft and resinous timber ratio and its overall weight compared to its strength enables it to be used for mainly for rafters. So if you want good timber, which I used to do, go to a 100-year-old building that's being wrecked and look at the rafters. They're probably cedar. Right. Or probably, they're probably Oregon, I should say. Mm. And you get those and you've got something which you'll strip down. And it's a beautiful timber. No, it is a beautiful timber. I remember I was renting a house in uh, Dover Street, Richmond, and we ripped up the linanium and there it was, Oregon pine. Yeah. Yep. Do you remember the timber yard, the salvage timber yard under the Westgate Bridge? Did you ever go to that place? Because they had an extraordinary... No, I used to go to, I used to, go to Wheelands. I yeah. used to go to... A, a place in uh, car, in uh, uh, Collingwood, mm. and but uh, and a number of others, but uh, and I on one occasion went to a place in uh, Clifton Hill, mm. just as a truckload of doors was coming in, and they were old red pine doors, glass panelled on top, which were normally double hung, mm. and on them they had. Uh, the original brass fitting hinges, which were massive hinges in thick brass and beautiful, you wouldn't get the like of them anywhere now unless you paid fifty, sixty dollars each. Mm. But the whole lot of them, I bought that the, the the truckload, and uh, there were about thirty or so, and I got them at thirty shillings each in those days. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I go for second-hand timbers, and I used to go to Will and the Wreckers and yep. select out mm-hmm. old bank doors I wanted a door. You just fit, build the house around a, a good door. Right. <laughs> rather, than, rather than using the ratchet panel doors that are around now with, yeah. with yeah. plywood on the surfaces. That's right. So when did you retire from paid employment? From? Paid employment. When did you stop work, basically? Not... Uh, I know you've well, never stopped I, work, but I mean getting paid for what you're doing, you know, lecturing and... Well, well, I was, I was a permanent lecturer at Melbourne uh, for about 18 years, mm. and then I was asked to come back sessionally later on. Right. And I had also then been asked to give major lectures on uh, the history of the Bauhaus School of Design yep. at uh, another university where... Two, two university students came together to do it, a two-hour lecture with two projectors and mm-hmm. a major treatise on Bauhaus. So I assume you'd been to the Bauhaus? No. Never? But I, I had studied 
the Bauhaus, uh, and uh, I knew about it from books of uh, an architecture that my father had. One book he had was a 1911 studio architectural yearbook type thing. In it, you get all of the old Victorian houses and all the others, and then one section, the new, the new German movement, and it's re- right. quite ridiculous. It's like as if someone had cut out pages of a modern magazine and shoved them in an old build, old book. Mm. And out of the out of the front of a uh, a stylish, uh, top quality German designed house, uh, more of a box construction, is a 1923 car. Mm. You know, which yes. <laughs> is ludicrous. Yes. It's like a, like a. a a joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, it was a joke. <laughs> so, so you, you, when did you stop lecturing? Um, it would have been in the 1980s. Right. But I have done uh, a lot of different work of different nature from since then. What type of work have you done since then? Well, I was I was working uh, making. Uh, gloss wax casting uh, jewellery in silver and gold with gemstones, particularly opal. Uh, I'm very familiar with opal because on one occasion one of my friends, we'll put that friend's inverted commas because he was a <laughs> bastard, actually, because he was at Cupertino, his family were there, and mm. his car had broken down and, and the undercarriage had been sh- shaken to pieces on the rutty roads. Mm. And he asked me to come down there. How, why did you come down and stay for a few days? <laughs> really, what he wanted was for me to do weld up his undercarriage so it could be kept on going, and which I did when I got there. But he couldn't put me up, so he uh, had a friend who was a miner who lived in a dugout, and I was asked if I'd mind going to stay with him and so I went with him and I went used to go and do mining with him for a, a couple of weeks yeah. the day would start with us going out to the mine which might be out two or three miles from Cooperpedi and uh, he had a, on the site a di- big diesel uh, power unit for generating electricity and he had a uh, a, a crane which for lifting up uh, loads of work from the mine and uh, he had an extraction vacuum cleaner with a something like uh, 25 centimetre, centimetre diameter tube you know so you can suck up mm. big yonis boulders mm. so the day would start in the morning going out to the mine you'd go down the mine and you'd bore five holes in the end of the wall of the rock in a the direction that you think there may be some oval, and you then come up and make up your, your explosives, which I won't describe because someone might copy the idea <laughs> and use it for other purposes, well, but is, you, yes. you made your own explosive up on the site yeah. using uh, common materials mm. and a detonator and a cardboard tube which was uh, about four centimetres, five centimetres in diameter and about... Uh, three quarters of a metre long. So you put that in and your fuses in the five holes, set the timing fuse to it, which gives you 10 minutes to get up the ladder, or otherwise it'd be difficult. Mm -hmm. And you get up the ladder, going up about 60 feet, and get out of the way, and then kaboom. Mm -hmm. Uh, If it goes bang, you haven't been very good with slaying your explosives, you want a kaboom, which is the deep sort of... (laughs) breaking up of the rock. Yes. You get down then and you go through it to see if any opals have been suddenly and miraculously appearing in the bottom and suck up all the waste and makes a cone of stuff and up near the mine, which is what you see if you're looking aerial, those big these cones of waste material. Mm-hmm. And then you set the next charge and go home. Mm-hmm. So you do one charge in the morning, you go in about a metre, another mm-hmm. charge the next day and go uh, the next in the afternoon go another metre. And you might be going the wrong bloody direction. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Or not. Or not, yeah. You, you live on the smell of an oily rag, yeah. and 90, 90% of the people there just barely hang on. Yeah. But 
the ones I, because I was with a miner and I used to go to the miners' dinners and things like that in their homes, in their dugout homes, they sometimes showed me the collection of stones. They were unbloody believable. Right. They, were, they were just to die for. Yes, yes. So, look, at the beginning you told us how you're, you're, you're 97. Now, obviously, yes. you're as sharp as a tack and obviously you're healthy now. Oh, really? No, <laughs> no, no, look, look I've been, oh, I've oh, been oh, interviewing oh. people here for yeah. about eight years. From You're the oldest. I had an 11-year-old I interviewed once, but... Uh, Sharp as a tack. Now, can you give us old folk listening and the young folk listening a little bit of advice on how to get to your situation? Yes, yes. Uh, keep up your exercise. Uh, I go to the gym three times a week. And uh, I, I used to uh, know how to train because I trained as an athlete. And I used to do a lot of bike riding and I used to uh, do cross-country running. And I know how to keep fit. But the main thing is to eat proper foods. If you're eating meat, just get a, get a, a good quality meat but a small portion. I mean a quarter of the size of your palm of your hand. Mm-hmm. And then have four vegetables with that that are uh, just lightly cooked. Cooked to the necessary amount and not... The uh, guts boiled out of them, mm-hmm. and uh, if you have that and fruit, a lot of fruit and cereals and nuts and things like that, which are the basis of a good stable diet, uh, I've managed to keep to seventy-two uh, kilometres uh, weight all through my life. Mm. You've just what seventy? You just stayed on seventy kilos all all through your life. Yeah, something like that. And how many kids did you have? Uh, three by my first marriage. Yes. And my present marriage with my, with, um, who, my wife, who's living with me now yes. in Ray Street, uh, we have a son who's 30. Right. Yeah. He was um, a very bright kid, and uh, I had to give special attention to him, give him constant puzzles because he was... He needed to be stimulated all the time. Mm. And he went to primary school uh, straight into grade two from kindergarten because he was already reading at grade four level and doing maths at grade three or four level. Mm. And then he uh, finished primary school and secondary school and four years of university by the age of 22. Because he skipped everything and he was one of those people who was an advanced student. Right. He did uh, maths and uh, programming mm. and he's now working as a, a senior programmer with the government. Oh, that's good. Look, Hal, look, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Hopefully you'll put some of these experiences down on paper for future generations because, as you know... Uh, well, I have, an, I have another life uh, apart from that. I, uh, I was interviewed recently by uh, a group of doctors from yes. Melbourne University about right. my experience with artists that right. I've known. Because mm-hmm. all my drinking mates were Boyd, Percival, Nolan, Tucker, Vasiliev mm-hmm. and people like that. Yes. And um, I, my close friend, all my close friends were those artists and... I knew a hell of a lot about them and I was able to give in that information on to people who were doing research on them. Right. Well, I think um, your other life has just been just as extraordinary and uh, I wish you all the best for the future and thank you for taking, thank you. And thank you for taking the time for, uh, to talk to us here at uh, 3CR. And, uh, no, well, I, I appreciate 3CR, I think, is, is uh, one of my stations. That's, that's the one. It's a good one. What's your favourite program? I assume it's one of the music programs. Uh, no, I, I particularly listen to to people who are talking on right. various topics. Yeah, right. But I, I just tune in and out. Right. Okay. I listen to a lot of different things. Well, it's good to know we've got one Fitzroy listener. Thank you very much. Oh. <laughs> All the very yeah. best for the future, Hal. Thank you. Same to you. Yep. So it's up to us, the people. 
We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.